Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Good morning. I am glad to be here to, to join you all this morning to share what God's laid on my heart over the last uh, few weeks. If you're joining us online this morning, we're so glad that you're able to join us from wherever you're at. Um, I'm going to actually go ahead and open up with prayer because we were running a little behind there in the comments. Uh, so I didn't have a chance to pray. So I want to pray this morning um, as we get ready to jump into the Word. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to be able to worship in your house. We're so grateful for the many ways that you've blessed our church, the ministries that you've blessed us with, like um, Awana and youth ministry and the multiple missions that we get to support, uh, the things that we get to do in our community, like backpack ministry and um, just the, the food pantry. There's so many ways that you have blessed our church to be able to bless the people around us. I pray that you'd continue to guide us to do that. God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, what it is that you would have us to do, and to soften our hearts to receive your word and open our ears to hear your voice. God, you are an amazing God, and we long to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen. I knew about a month ago that this was going to be a week that would fall in between sections of our series. Uh, we just wrapped up last week a portion of, this, of a, the series, this Abundant Life series that we've been in uh, on the gifts of the Spirit. And next week, we're going to be starting the next phase of that series, uh, and it'll be on the warfare of the Spirit and talking about that armor of God. So as I'd been thinking about what I would preach on this week, um, on this kind of a one-and-done type week that kind of falls in between uh, topics, and as I was listening for what God would have me preach There's a word or an idea that kept coming to mind, and that idea is revival. Over the last three or four years, um, even back, you know, pre-COVID, it seemed like every pastor's conference that I went to, um, everything that I heard in in denominational meetings or district meetings with the Wesleyan Church, church planning conferences I'd been to, even in, in the titles of worship songs that are being written right now, this idea of revival keeps popping up all over the place. And while part of me is really excited about that, there's also part of me that is a little bit concerned because it feels like revival has become or is becoming the next Christian buzzword. Uh, And revival isn't something that should just become the next Christian cliche because we've thrown around too much because we've talked about it too lightly, right? Our nation really is in a spot that's ripe for revival, Right? In a time unlike any other, at least any other that my generation has seen, people are questioning who they are and what makes them the way that they are. Uh, they're, 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 it just feels like they're questioning everything. Uh, issues that are questioning what the value of a human life is, whether that has to do with race relations or immigration or warfare, abortion, we see people questioning the value of human life and, and what our place is in the cycle of that life. 
And who better to step into those situations and answer those questions to bring resolution than the Spirit of God? Revival is something that we, we want to see. We truly are in a time that's ripe for revival. But the question that I keep asking myself is, are Christians ready to do the work of revival? God alone brings revival, but revival requires a lot of work. And that's what I want to talk this, about this morning, the work of revival. I was hesitant at first because I don't want to be just one more voice, adding one more perspective of, of revival or one more person saying that it's coming. I don't want to continue to diminish or decrease the value of that word, but there are two thoughts that led me to press forward this morning. The first one is this. Even if, if not applied to revival, what I'm preaching about this morning has so much to offer us when it comes to spiritual growth, whether it's in our parenting, our marriages, our finances, our work life, right? That list could go on and on. The concept of consecration has so much power to help us move forward in our relationship with Christ. And the second thought was this. There comes a time when we as Christians say enough is enough. It's time to stop mere talk and to begin putting our words into action. Right? 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love for God and for each other for the world around us, needs to carry us to action, right? So for some, maybe this morning is a reminder of what the concept of consecration is. And for others, maybe it's reinforcing the things that you're, you're already doing. And for others, maybe it's a chance to draw a line in the sand and say, God, up to this point, I've believed more in word uh, than I have in deed and in truth. Today's the day that I bring those things together uh, and begin to live more on mission with you. So let's jump into the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 through 38. Exodus 40, 33 through 38. As Moses concluded the work of the tabernacle, um, some, some really significant things happened, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 through 38, and it says this. And he, Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." The tabernacle was a unique expression of God's love for the people of Israel. And it was the early picture of his provision for his people, the way that he's providing for them to be atoned for. The sacrifices that were given in the temple were the, were the predecessors for the perfect sacrifice that Christ would become for us. And it was the predecessor to the temple being filled by the Spirit, which would then represent 
us being filled with the Spirit. And so as we look at the conclusion and the consecration of the temple, we can draw a lot of parallels to the way that God continues to work in our lives now today. And before we start breaking down the passage, I think it's good that we define consecration. There are quite a few words, at least five or six that I could find in between the Old and New Testament that are used in relation to consecration. But the two primary words were the Hebrew word kadesh and the Greek word hagiazo, which means to set apart and to dedicate. The idea behind consecration is people or things being separated to or belonging to God, making them holy or sacred. Right? When something or someone is consecrated, it is set apart for the service of God. The thing that's important to understand from these words is that there is a God part of consecration, and then there's an us part of congregation, consecration. God is the only one able to make something, anyone or anything, holy. Right? God is the only one able to make anyone or anything holy. We are sinful people, and people who have sin in their lives can't make something holy. Only a sinless God can do that. Only a being, being that's never sinned, that doesn't have that stain in their life, can make something perfect and holy. But in order for something to be made holy, there is an action required on our part to set that thing aside. It's like our way of saying that we're ready to steward the portion of the Holy Spirit that God is giving us for His service. Because if we're not willing to follow God... A, why would we ask? <laughs> and why would he continue to pour out his immense power into us in the form of the Holy Spirit? We all have the Spirit residing in us, and it's evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. That's a big part of what we've been talking about in this Abundant Life series. But at certain points in time, there's evidence of a more powerful or a more pointed work of the Spirit happening. And that's what I'm talking about as far as revival this morning. Those moments when heaven seems to meet earth, when the, it seems like the distance between God and humanity grows closer. And we see a pouring out of the Spirit that changes everything in a profound way. I like the way that revival is defined in the book, Longing for Revival. The authors have defined revival as a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power that ushers in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. Another book that I'm reading uh, quoted a doctoral dissertation about American revivals, which found that revival always positively impacts the surrounding culture. They said that the Second Great Awakening, which is from about 1790 to 1820, resulted in the abolition of slavery, the end of child labor, uh, the beginning of women's rights, uh, the move for universal literacy and the reformation of prisons. At a conference that I was at recently, one of the speakers pointed out that following every global pandemic-type event, the Black Plague, the American Revolution, the Civil War, uh, World War I, World War II, after every one of those things, we've seen monumental shifts after the fact, and every one of them has seen some sort of spiritual breakthrough or revival. That's because when we set ourselves aside for the service of God, 
it makes room for the Spirit to move. And we're often more ready to set ourselves aside after we've seen the way that circumstances beyond our control affect humanity. If you look at the dates of the Second Great Awakening, it's it's right after the American Revolution. There's this major shift, a new perspective on life that encouraged people to seek after God. And then we saw major shifts begin to take place culturally as people began to let the Spirit work and move through them in every arena of life. And we're living in a time right now where people are ready to make that shift again. The question is, are the people of God going to be catalysts in the decisions that shape that movement? Or are we going to sit back and let culture do it instead? And I think it's a big question to ask ourselves. Are we going to let God work through us to be catalysts in the decisions that shape those movements? So let's jump back into that passage before I go too far off the rails here. (laughs) The part of verse 33 that I want to draw out is really simple, but it's an incredibly important sentence. So Moses finished the work. Right? So Moses finished the work. In Exodus 34, a few chapters back, we see Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the tablets, the two tablets, and his face is shining. And then in chapter 35, we see the construction of the tabernacle begin. It began with people giving of their possessions and setting uh, workers aside to do the work. Interestingly, side note, in chapter 36, Moses had to stop the people from giving. (laughs) The workers came to him and said, Moses, we've got way too much. The people have given too much. We don't know what to do with it all. you got to stop them. (laughs) Can you imagine if that was a a problem we had today? (laughs) It would be awesome. Um, it began with people giving of their possessions and setting the workers aside. Uh, if you continue reading all the way up through chapter 40, verse 33, you see all the different things that are being done, the ways that things are being constructed. The work was done with painstaking detail, with the workers who were specifically gifted and specifically set aside for that work and then by sacrificial and generous giving of the people. And then we arrive at verse 33. The work was finished. Everything that was in the tabernacle has passed through the hands of God out of the way of the Lord, so that everything, the people, the resources, everything was given by God, stewarded by the people, and then put back into the hands of God. And this is the first step to the consecrated life. As it says in, in, in Romans 12, 1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our part of consecration is giving of ourselves in an act of worship. It struck, it struck me this week as I was reading, there is no consecration without sacrifice. Everything that, that happened that they were doing required some degree of sacrifice. In order to be fully given over to God, it's going to require a sacrifice on our part because it means literally taking something that's ours and setting it aside for God to breathe new life into it, whether it's our finances, our time, ourselves, our families, whatever it might be, it's setting it aside and say, God, you're gonna, I'm, I want you to work through this. I'm giving this over to you to work through. No strings attached. I want you to take all of it. 
Then in verse 34, we see the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That, that cloud wasn't just a show of power for dramatic effect. Right? It wasn't just like pumping the room full of fog to make it seem like a certain environment or a certain thing was happening. It wasn't just for dramatic effect. It was the very presence of God come down to live among his people. By coming down and resting on the tent, it was the assurance to Israel that everything they had offered, all the time, all the money, all the sweat and the tears that they had put into it, had been accepted, and the tabernacle had been sealed for God's use. I can't imagine being there in that moment, just having completed all this and wondering, did we do this right? Is God going to accept us? Is God going to come and be here and dwell among us? And the next thing you know, the, the cloud is descending on the tabernacle. I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in saying, if God would only right, do this or that, then I would know for sure that he's real. Then I would know for sure that he's here. The thing is, he's already made us a promise to be here. Before he left earth, he told his disciples that he was going to send uh, the perfect counselor for us to, to live within us. God commands that we give him our all. And we know that when we give our all, he's going to accept it as our spiritual act of worship. Interestingly, as you read through Scripture, there's moments when people didn't give their all, when they held things back, right? You think about Ananias and Sapphira, where they held back uh, the prophets of what they had given. And that, that offering was not accepted. But when the people of God gave freely of everything that they had, then it was considered their spiritual act of worship. Philippians 1.6 tells us, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus had not come this far. He's not come this far, and he's not done this much for us, only to drop us now. If we're faithful to yield ourselves to the work that God wants to do in our lives, he will be faithful to complete it. That's the assurance that we have. He's made that promise. He's sent the Spirit to live within us. And as we look at the procession of events, notice the parallels that we see in our own salvation. Surrender, acceptance, possession. The Israelites surrendered their, their time, their possessions, for the building of the tabernacle. God accepted it. He showed it, that he was accepting it. And then he filled that place. Much like the disciples in the upper room, right? Before Jesus left, he told them to wait, to be clothed with power from on high. So that's what they did. They went to the upper room. They waited in prayer. That was their act of surrender. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The same story is true all through Scripture if you look. Anytime people are, are used in a bold, unique way, they've first given themselves over to God. Isaiah had a vision, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then the seraphim come down with the burning coal. They touch his mouth. His guilt's taken away. His sin is atoned for. And then he receives his commissioning. Isaiah demonstrated his surrender and bowing down before God, recognizing that he is completely lost 
humbling himself, himself. God accepted it, cleansed him, and then sent him out with a new purpose empowered by the Spirit. The same was true of many of the judges. When you look at Hannah's prayer for a son, promising to give him over to service for God, and then Samuel being born, you look at uh, Stephen and the way that he's used in ministry, the stories go on and on. Right? Our human part in consecration is surrender. God's part is in the accepting and the filling. God alone can truly consecrate something evidenced by his filling. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be consecrated in the truest and the fullest sense. That's the most simple description of consecration that I've been able to find. Surrender, acceptance, possession, or, or filling, whatever you want to call that. So after that happens, what can we expect? After we've surrendered, what can we expect? What happens once something or someone has been consecrated? And is that any different than what happens at the moment of salvation? The first thing that happens is evidenced in chapter 40, verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because the glory filled the tabernacle. Or you can call this the exclusion of man. Moses could no longer go into the temple if God's, once God's presence filled it because he couldn't stand before the divine and live. Man's place is outside when God comes in. And in the same play, way, when the Holy Spirit fills us, our self needs to stand back and let God work. There isn't room for the flesh and the spirit to battle within us. It's, it's unnecessary. God is preparing to do a far better work than we can do for ourselves. But we often want to hold on to ourselves for fear that we might lose our identity, we might lose who we are, and because we're not sure that we'll like what we become as much as we do what we are right now. I mean, when you think about it, isn't that kind of foolish? <laughs> To know that God who created the universe wants to do something within us and the thing that we're holding on to, we're holding on to because we're not sure we're going to like what he makes us into. And yet we often do it. We need to live the words that Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for many. When we die to ourselves and we stop withholding parts of our life from him, we'll see what it means to be filled to overflowing with the power of the Spirit. But if we continue to hold on to self, we muddy up what it means to be filled with the Spirit because we're diluting it with so much of ourselves that you have to ask the question, is that really God anymore? We may catch glimpses of what it means to, to experience life full of the Spirit, but it's not the life that God means for us to live. The second thing that happens is seen in verse 36, where it says, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. The same Spirit who fills us becomes our guide in every aspect of life. The Spirit fills us and leads us in all the ways and the will of God. There's a direct connection in being filled with the Spirit and understanding 
God's leading. In Matthew chapter 3, 16 through 17, we see the, the baptism of Jesus. We see the Spirit of God descending on him. And in the very next verse, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we see Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil, which is a necessary part of Jesus' journey triumphing over sin and Satan. The Spirit was within him and it was guiding him into the ways and the wills of God. We also see in, in 1 John 2.27 where it says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And John's not saying that receiving teaching is a bad thing. He's communicating that the bringer of truth abides in us. The Holy Spirit abides in us. And if we abide in him, then we will know the truth. We are led by the Spirit only after being filled with the Spirit. And then third, in verse 38, we see, the cloud was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tent was also called the tabernacle of witness because it was a witness to the presence, the power, and the holiness of God. It was a way for the Israelites to encounter and to be constantly reminded of everything that God represented to them. <clears throat> Without God's feeling, the tabernacle was just a really fancy tent. <laughs> Without God dwelling there, it was just a really fa fancy tent that probably would have been a real pain to break down and move around. Because when you start reading it, go read it later today, chapter 35 through, through 40. Everything that went into the tent, there's a lot there. Without the Spirit, without God dwelling in that, it's just a tent. Full of God's presence, it was a witness. Humanity, void of the Spirit, can't be a witness to Christ. Without the Spirit dwelling within us, we have to ask ourselves, what are we really reflecting back to the culture around us? If Christ isn't the thing that fills us, then we're representing our own ideas to culture, not the Spirit. Way back at the beginning of our Abundant Life series, we talked about abiding in Christ and the fruit that we would bear as a result. And that fruit is a testimony to the kind of tree that we are. A life in the Spirit is evidenced by fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit becomes a witness to all people around us what Christ's love for the world means. It becomes a testimony to the work that God is doing in us and through us. The disciples were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. And it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then if you continue reading... They rapidly become witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. By the end of Acts chapter 2, it says, 
the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were becoming witnesses. So to answer the question, is it any different than what happens when we receive salvation? No. And at the same time, yes. <laughs> no, it's not, because if we've really put our faith in Christ, it starts with surrender. It starts with surrendering ourselves to Him completely. And we're told that when we've been accepted, we're filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment, right? At the moment of faith, at the mo- we're saved completely, not partially. It's not like we have to do a bunch of work in order to receive that. We're filled instantly. We're justified before Christ in that moment. But two observations I've made about that initial moment of salvation. Many of us fall into one of two categories. The first thing is either we've, we've been, we believe intellectually, and we want to believe beyond that, but we never move on to letting belief affect our daily life and our lives are not evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's one category that we sometimes fall into. We understand what the Bible says. We hear what they're saying about Jesus, and our minds want to believe it. But we really never fully surrender. Or two, and I think this is probably when more, where more of us find ourselves, we fully believe. We surrender ourselves to Christ, but we... we find ourselves holding on to little bits and pieces of our old selves or finding that we wish we had a little more wiggle room than what we see in the Bible and trying to regain a little bit of independence over our lives rather than fully submitting to God's will. In either case, we're crowding out the Spirit of God and limiting His work in our lives. And by extension, we're limiting the work in the community around us by not carrying out his part of his mission or our part of his mission. As I was writing this week, my fear was that some of this would be heard as a form of works righteousness or attempting to earn our salvation. And and, and that's not what this is. That's not what I'm saying. I love the way um, that I read it in, in the book, Longing for Revival. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude that we live in, and effort is an action. There are some actions that are, are required, right? We don't, do, we don't do good works to coerce God into giving us something. We don't do works to coerce God into giving us salvation. God's given that freely. As soon as we put our faith in Christ, God's given that freely. But God has commanded us to do a number of things, and I believe it's consistent with Scripture to say that God wants to know that we're ready to steward the gifts that He gives us. Right? Whether they're physical or they're spiritual gifts, sometimes our reaction or our, our action is required to get to that point. And it's not because God requires it. I think it's because God knows we need that to click in our minds. (laughs) Sometimes we need that action to to reinforce that we are fully submitted to God's will. I suspect that many of us have things we already know of in our lives that are creating a barrier between us and receiving God's best. And I'm I'm not talking about wealth. 
Right? This isn't a, a prosperity gospel type of message. In fact, consecration, depending on what God is calling you to, may require giving up wealth by human standards. Right? This isn't a way to, to give so that we can get. That's not at all what this is. It's also possible that some of you today have, have not given yourselves to Christ at all yet. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Christ today and maybe this morning marks the first day of your salvation in Christ. So I have two challenges for us. Right? This is that how then shall we, how then shall we live where the, where the rubber meets the road? And it can apply no matter what you are seeking, whether that's salvation it's direction in your marriage, finances, maybe it's being a catalyst to revival. Right? I know that that is my prayer. I want to see revival in our community because when you think about revival affecting every part of culture, when you watch the news, when you open social media, there's no doubt that culture needs to be impacted by the church. So I know that's my prayer this morning, and that's my hope. But I also recognize that that's not where all of us are at. Maybe you're working through something different. So here are the challenges. Two, two things. First is confess. Right? Whether you're putting your faith in Christ for the first time or you're taking your next step in faith this morning, it's good to start with confession. Right? Sin is the thing that gets in the way of us fully living into God's will. So confess your sin to him so that you can move on and leave it behind. Right? Repentance is, is turning away from sin and, and going in the other direction. And it starts with confession. In 1907, the, the Pyongyang revival started, and it's often considered the birthplace of Korean Protestantism. Protestantism. It was marked by two knights that felt somehow blocked by the, up to the Spirit's work. It didn't seem like God was able to move. And then a third day, that, that day being after a, a night full of prayer, was marked by widespread confession of sin and repentance. That movement has continued to grow ever since. And to this day, South Korea has the largest churches in the world and sends the most missionaries per capita of any nation in the world. We need to get out of the way and part of confession is acknowledging, I'm not enough. I'm imperfect, and I need God to cleanse me. I can't do this on my own. I've got to get out of the way and let God do it. And sometimes it's saying, God, this is what I've done wrong. Sometimes if it's a sin that you're stuck in, that's confessing to somebody else and saying, this is a sin that's present in my life. I need help. I need someone to hold me accountable. Confess whether that's between you and God or it's between you and somebody else this morning, that's the first challenge, confess. And the second challenge is do something costly. We can all evaluate our lives and see places that are holding us back. You may even know some, some of those places already that God's calling you to do something. But it's giving up something costly to you. But if it's but it might be giving up something that's costly to you that's holding you back. Maybe it's the time that you spend with a certain group of people, the money that you spend on a particular thing that's unnecessary, 
It's the time that you spend watching TV at night, right? That's what I'm guilty of. That's what I'm going to be working on. Maybe it's that extra hour of beauty rest in the morning that you know that you don't really need, but it just feels so good. (laughs) Maybe it's surrendering. This one's a tough one, right? Maybe it's surrendering time with a spouse because your desire to see them or do something or to spend time with them is greater than your desire to be obedient to God's will. I would imagine we all have something if we take the time to think it through that we're still holding on to. I know that as I've been thinking through it, I'm still on the fence of what that is exactly for me, but I can tell you it's definitely going to relate to the way that I spend my time. Probably less time watching TV or or maybe a social media fast or both. But what is your something costly? What's that thing that you know is going to be painful to get rid of, but you know is holding you back from really giving God your all? So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Our part of consecration is to be fully submissive to God's will and eager to live into that will. Right? The rest is up to God. That's our part. Being so fully submissive to God's will and eager to live into it. The rest of it's up to God. The important part is taken care of by God. So let's stop living as if we're resigned to God's will, as if we're saying, all right, I guess. How bad can it be? I guess I'll try this. I know I'm supposed to. Set that aside, and instead, let's be eager to submit to God's work in our lives and where he's going to take us. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have uh, to worship you and to praise you. I thank you that you have promised us that when we submit ourselves to you, when we give ourselves to you, that you come into our lives immediately and you cleanse us from within and you save us from our sins. God, there may be somebody here this morning who is struggling with letting go of self to receive something better, and that's your Holy Spirit. And I pray this morning, God, that they would put their faith in Christ, that they would set aside themselves and accept you and live within the hope and the comfort and the joy of being accepted as a child of God. And I pray this morning that as we submit ourselves to your cleansing, that we would experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like none other. God, we know that your spirit resides in us. That's not anything that we're denying. But we want you to move through us in a powerful way here in Cadillac. We want to see our friends and our families and our neighbors come to faith. We want to see workplaces redeemed and renewed. We want to see a fresh work begin here. I think about that video that Scott made and sent for us, and and he was talking about living in a time of Babylon. And I don't think that's the future. I think it's now. And only you have the strength and the power to deliver us, to give us the resilience to live and to stand up in a time when faith is difficult. And you are an amazing God. You have promised to accept us and to fill us. It's amazing to know that 
that you have come down to dwell and to live among us. And we thank you for everything that you're doing in us and through us, the many ways that you've blessed our families and this church. And we thank you. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.